This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this is the fourth in our series on voices from civil society during the coronavirus pandemic, uh, where we've been speaking to people from across the charity sector and the social enterprise world to get their thoughts and views on how the current crisis is affecting them and other organisations they work with so far. So in this compilation episode, we are speaking to Will Moy, who is the chief executive of Full Fact, the fact-checking charity here in the UK, uh, to Virginia Anderson, who's head of fundraising at Bobath Scotland, um, a cerebral palsy charity based in Glasgow, uh, and also to Carol Mack, who is the chief executive of the Association of Charitable Foundations, the membership body for charitable foundations here in the UK. Um, I should say there are a couple of sort of inconsistencies with recording here. Um, one that's not so problematic in the interview with Virginia, where a dog comes in, which I decided to leave in because I found it quite charming. Um, and with Carol's, there is a little bit of crack on the line which I think is entirely my fault because uh, I asked her to turn the microphone up and that's resulted in a little bit of gain on there so I hope you can bear with that it's still perfectly fine but um, I've done my best with the audio editing. Um, Okay so without further ado let's go into the conversations and I will be back at the end for a bit of housekeeping and tidying up. This first conversation is with Will Moy, who's the chief executive of Full Fact, which is the leading fact-checking charity here in the UK. And he's talking about some of the work that they've been doing in response to uh, combating misinformation during the coronavirus crisis so far. So here's Will. Great. So um, I'm here with Will Moy from Full Fact. Hi there, Will. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much for finding the time to come on. Um, I, I guess the you know the the place to start would just be if you could just say you know briefly in your own words a little bit about uh, you know what full fact is and what you do and and maybe about how the the whole COVID nineteen pandemic has been affecting you guys so far. Full fact is a team of fact checkers and campaigners. Uh, we are here to fight the harm that bad information does. Right now, there are millions of people sitting at home or not sitting at home. Uh, whose lives may be saved or changed by having access to good information. It's our job to make sure that good information reaches the people who need it and also to challenge bad information. Uh, We've been running since 2010. Uh, We spent a lot of time fact-checking elections and referendums. We've had a few of those doing... Uh, trying to raise the quality of public debate, uh, often in a political space. Right now, we're working on something that is immediate, right in front of us, affecting absolutely everybody and where lives are very clearly at stake. And and what kind of, um, what's the sort of focus of what you're working on? Is it kind of information around public health or are there other elements to it as well? Yes, so it's it's not just public health. It's also, uh, it can be public order. It can be individual worries and fears. The big trends we're seeing are firstly, and perhaps most dangerously, misleading claims about people's own medical care. 
false information about how to test whether you've got the virus or not. Um, claims that if you've got a runny nose, you can't be ill with coronavirus. That's not true. Um, false information about how you can prevent yourself getting ill just by gargling salt water or drinking warm water. That's not true. Um, and uh, we're also seeing, though, kind of classic forms of bad information channeling all of the usual human fears and hatreds. So claims that the Rothschilds, the famous Jewish family, somehow had a patent on a, a vaccine um, for this disease, that they knew about it in advance, blaming um, China for various things that China is not responsible for. Um, bad information can ruin lives in several ways. It can damage your health, but it can also be used to promote health hate and we are seeing some of that too and of course people are wondering what the government is doing and there's plenty of false information out that about that as well sometimes from the government itself so we have an important accountability role in a democracy too yeah absolutely and i, and I guess there's so much important information coming out and at such a pace um you know at the moment every every day there's there's something new that people have to digest what what do you do in terms of getting that information out i mean what are the channels you use we're starting with monitoring. So we're monitoring the media. We're monitoring what the government itself says and other political parties. We're monitoring what's online uh, using specialist tools for tracking trending information on the OSPEN platforms. We have a partnership with Facebook where they flag to us uh, information that they think might be false on Facebook. We can fact check it entirely independently, choose what to check and what the results are. But if we find information that is false on Facebook, they will uh, make it less prominent on Facebook. They say that reduces the spread by about 80%. You might also see if you're on Facebook and you go to share some of this stuff, a message saying that Full Fact has fact-checked it. Do you want to have a read of the fact-check before you share it? Now, you can read it or not, and you can choose to share or not. It's a free country. But at least we're giving people information at the point where they're making that crucial decision about what to share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and in terms of the, the sort of resources available to you, so you guys are a charity yourselves, aren't you? Am I, am I right? We are a charity. Yeah. Yep. So obviously you kind of rely on, I'd assume, various forms of kind of grant funding from from different bodies. Have you have you found that your kind of need for resources has has ramped up as a result of the work you're doing? And have you found what's the response from funders been in terms of seeing you as somewhere where they're going to kind of put money because they see what you're doing is important, uh, you know, to to uh, tackling this crisis? It's been an enormously demanding time. Uh, one of the frontline battles in this crisis is making sure people get and trust reliable information about what's going on and the choices that we all need to make. And we are finding that the funders who know us that we work with are very supportive of the work we're doing. They're providing the kind of flexibility we need. Um, we're grateful to the relatively small group of trusts that have supported us over the years, people like Joseph Roundtree, Esme Fairburn, the Nuffield Foundation, Barry Cadbury, Luminate, um, a really great crowd of funders who've been very supportive. Um, we're also getting funding from Facebook, who we're working with, and getting funding from Google, who we're working with. They have the internet scale perspective on this. So uh, we're seeing the same kinds of problems in lots of different countries, trying to join up with other fact checkers around the world. But most of all, and uh, protecting our independence in all of this is the 
a couple of thousand people who are donating to us every month to keep us going and keep us independent. And for us, knowing that there are moments when the focus is really on the quality of information and there are times when it's not, having that core group of people who will back us up and help us stay independent is really important. Do you have any sense that over the the sort of medium to longer term, as the you know this initial phase of the the crisis dies down, there people might potentially kind of appreciate the value of of fact checking and having that kind of objective information even more, and might sort of see it as something that is a public good. I think they will. We wrote this line last year: bad information ruins lives. It damages people's health. It promotes hate. It hurts democracy. And it seemed like an ambitious message to get out at the time. And now it's just writ large in everybody's day-to-day life. And I think what we have to remember is that the best response that we're seeing here, which is make sure that the official information is clear and out there and clearly trusted, make sure we're responding quickly and effectively to bad information where it comes, make sure it's not just in one place, but is reaching into the communities it needs to reach into. All of those things are true in so many other areas of our shared and democratic life. Um, The democratic choices we've made over the last few years would feel different if we had all felt that we had reliable shared sources of information. Our evidence um, from the last election is that a significant number of people seem to be choosing not to participate at all simply because they felt they couldn't trust any of the parties involved in the election. And we've got to start recognising the damage that does. Yeah, absolutely. I guess at a time where trusted uh, information from public figures is more important than ever, if that has been eroded, then that, that kind of affects all of us. I was just wondering as well, when you were saying that, do you find in any of the work you do that there are particular challenges for kind of uh, charities or, or community groups in terms of misinformation? Are, th- are they ever the sort of targets of conspiracy theories or misinformation? I, I think particularly um, communities Um, and therefore the groups involved in them. Um, I mentioned the experience of Jewish people in passing earlier. Um, It's very easy to talk about the experience of Muslim people, the experience of immigrants to this country, um, the experience of women. Um, It's not just minority groups. Um, If you have any identity that some other people are uncomfortable with or don't like, then there is a decent chance that you will find yourself being misrepresented. And in a free society, we should not be trying to cut out all the misrepresentation, all the bad information in the world. But what we should be doing is identifying when it does real harm and thinking about what a proportionate response to that is. And fact-checking as well as serving millions of people as we do with good information, is also about understanding what the problem is, where it's coming from, and where the interventions are that might make a difference, whether that's improving the quality of official information or getting the internet companies to redesign some of their products. Um, Those are the kinds of challenges we're looking to to partly uh, help to solve these problems. And and then just finally, um, I just wanted to ask you, obviously, we talked about quite a lot of the, the challenges and the sort of work you've been doing in response. I mean, have you seen anything so far that gives you cause for hope and optimism, either about, you know, the, the, the ability to, of civil society to rise to these sorts of challenges or just kind of more broadly us as a society? Yeah, I think the enormous adaptability, let me bring it close to home, Full Facts team, you know, they are flat out in a really crucial role in trying to tackle these problems, serving millions of people 
Um, and they are also worried about themselves, worried about the people they live with, worried about the people they care for, and going through massive disruption at work or not at work. And they've risen to it with such class. Um, and I think all around the country, we're seeing people show the huge level of adaptability that people have at our best and the ways we can support each other. And I think we should be really proud of all of the good parts of human nature we're seeing coming out here. The people who are looking to donate, the people who are looking to volunteer. The charity sector, I think rightly, has a bit of a reputation for not looking after its staff well enough. This is an opportunity for us to celebrate just what an extraordinary group of people we all collectively are at our best and maybe to think about what we take out of the end of this experience that we could do better in the future. Great. And yeah, an optimistic note on, on which to end. Uh, just to say thanks ever so much for finding the time to come on, Will. It's been great to have a chance to, to chat to you and I wish you all the best uh, in terms of what I'm sure is going to be a busy uh, few months or more to come. Thank you very much indeed. The second conversation is with Virginia Anderson, who is uh, head of fundraising uh, at Bobath Scotland, which is, as you'll hear, a, a fundraising charity uh, that works on cerebral palsy based up in Glasgow. And she's also the chair of the Institute of Fundraising Scotland group. Uh, so here's Virginia. OK, great. So I'm here with Virginia Anderson from Bobath Scotland. Hi, Virginia. Good morning. Um, thanks very much for finding some time uh, to, to have a chat. I know it's incredibly busy for, for a lot of people at the moment, so I really appreciate it. Um, I guess the best place to start is if you could just sort of say a bit about um, what you do at Bobath and also kind of how the COVID-19 pandemic has been affecting your organisation and other organisations that you work with so far. So Bobath Scotland, we're a, a kind of medium-sized charity based in Glasgow. Um, that We work with people with cerebral palsy and we've provide really hands-on support. So that kind of overnight had to disappear um, because obviously we can't work one-to-one with people in an environment of uh, uh, the world of social distancing. Um, What has changed rapidly, though, is taking our staff out of the centre and to working from home. Um, But there's been a huge demand for information and support. So we are supporting people on the phone and online um, providing kind of reassurance, providing information, things like, you know, if you can't wash your own hands, how do you wash your hands? Which is what we're all being directed to do. And um, we've seen a huge upturn in the number of people kind of accessing our website. So there's been about 4,000 people in the last week alone who um, have come looking for condition-specific information. And that's... that. I mean, there's a huge upturn for us. So we have been really busy, um, despite the fact that the, our centre is closed. Yeah, absolutely. And and has it affected? So has it affected your fundraising ability as well? I mean, what's your kind of normal income look like, and has, has that been knocked by by what's happening? It's been hugely disrupted. Um, we most of our income, eighty five percent of our income, comes through voluntary sources. Um, so we had to cancel one of two major events of the year. Um, all of our community fundraising is just immediately out of the window. So people taking part in events like the London Marathon and the Kilt Walk, that's all gone. Um, and we've also seen some of our funders being hugely supportive and responsive, but others um, delaying decisions. 
So we have a rolling programme of grant applications that just um, have been shut down um, alongside other funders actually opening the doors wider and saying, what can we do to help? So we're still navigating that. We don't have a big individual giving programme. So that's something we're having to kind of learn on our feet about how we handle that. Um, our major donors have been hugely supportive as well, but um, that's a, we're going to have to keep in touch with them about what the future means and what the next six months look like as we perhaps need permission to spend money differently than we would usually do. Absolutely. And, and as, you know, as a fundraiser, how are you finding the, the sort of enforced transition to working remotely and, and digitally? Um, I mean, both in terms of kind of within a team, but also in terms of I assume a lot of your work, as you say, would involve events or kind of working with people face to face. So how are you adapting? Well, there's there's a really clear split in the team, actually, because we have um, a team largely made up of part time staff, two of whom routinely work from home for part of the week anyway. So they're kind of just carrying on as usual. The challenge for them though is having small children at home um, and having to kind of cope with juggling what they normally do and having having small boys running around the place kind of demanding um, their day is spent differently. But they are already used to being flexible. And um, what's a challenge for us is, um, is for those of us who work in a more face-to-face capacity with donors and supporters and who are used to being office-based. So information you think you know and take for granted, suddenly you can't access. Um, I, I'm living out of a Star Wars bag for life. Uh, that's my new office. Um, and I brought all the files on my desk and, and kind of key documents. So things like our constitution, our accounts, our annual report. So at least we have all of those things that, you know, that are there is just a kind of point of reference. How that plays out in terms of reporting will be a big challenge because we're coming to the end of a quarter, we're coming to the end of a financial year. It's typically a time where there's a lot of funders who are expecting quarterly reports that we can't necessarily um, access the same information as we normally do. And that's going to put a delay on things. And I hope then doesn't delay um, kind of grants for, for the year ahead. Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, what do you do you currently sort of think are going to be the biggest challenges for you or, you know, or indeed kind of for other fundraisers? I know you're involved uh, as chair of the IOF, IOF Scotland um, up there. So what do you think those challenges over the coming months, if this situation continues, you know, in anything like its current form are going to be? I think there's there's two sides to that. One is about staffing and about confidence. We all know that how important it is to have a degree of kind of psychological safety to be successful at work, to feel that we are confident, to feel we're supported, to feel like we're part of a team. And um, keeping that going is going to be, you know, we're, we're going to have to do that very differently than the way we're used to. For those people who work with regional fundraisers, so community fundraisers who are home-based for the bigger national charities are really used to working in this way. And I think kind of as a sector, we should be looking to them to kind of learn the lessons of what works rather than reinventing the wheel. Um, for us as a charity, it's, it's very much about thinking kind of short, medium and long term. What can we do today to make the second half of the year better, for example? And how do we cope in the interim? What can we prepare what can we do ahead of time where we're not out at schools or standing at the finish line of a race or in a, a kind of a, a pitch to a kind of partner organisation? Um, huge change also in how we relate to other workplaces as corporates. 
have closed their doors. Most of our partners, as we're a medium-sized organisation, most of our partners are small to medium-sized businesses. They're not going to be wearing Christmas jumpers and baking cakes. Um, so we have a job to do in thinking about how we work with them, the, the kind of the contact that we have with them to be supportive rather than to expect uh, blood from a stone at this point of t in time. So um, it's a challenge to us all um, about how we we can conduct a day-to-day -day business. I think the other really interesting thing that's emerging at the moment... Oh, sorry. That's all right. That's, that's a small dachshund who thinks he's a Doberman. I'm just going... It's not ideal. Did bear with me. Yeah, no problem, no problem. Okay, the small the small uh, dachshund is, who thinks he's a Doberman is now contained. <laughs> Excellent. I think one really interesting thing for me in all of this is that there's a real focus often from funders about paying project costs. And actually what's become really clear in the last 10 days is how important the, the, the admin is, the overhead is. You know, it's the people, our receptionist, our centre manager at work, for example, she's at home with her kids, but she's still answering the phone. She's the person who is the conduit for everything that's coming into the organisation at the moment. Most grant applications would consider her an unnecessary overhead. But actually, she's more critical to us today than she, you know, than quite often is because she is that single point of contact for just now. And so I think there's a challenge there to donors and to funders to say, actually recognise the importance of fundraisers who are keeping the pot boiling who are responding to all the social media, who are responding to um, the phone calls, the, the concerns, who are managing the messaging that is kind of coming out of an organisation and how we continue to support our beneficiaries, even if we can't see them in person. Um, and understanding the importance of all of those administrative staff in keeping things going and keeping business as usual as it possibly can be. And they're the ones who in our sector are often very overlooked. And we've seen the same in the wider world with supermarket staff, for example, cleaners, bin men, all these people that do their jobs invisibly right now are, are some of the most important people in our world. So that would be my challenge to those who support us is to see the importance of what we often write off as overhead. Absolutely. And I, th I think that that shift among a lot of funders um, towards being much more open to the idea of just kind of giving unrestricted funding is really interesting. It'll be fascinating to see whether that's one of the things that becomes a sort of longer term change or whether there's a sort of reversion to, to type app after all of this has calmed down. But I'm, I'm optimistic on, on that one. Um, in addition to the, the things funders can be doing to help in the short term, are there are there any things in your mind that um, you know central or local government could be doing or kind of other charities to to help the sector as a whole kind of get through this this short term challenge? I think I mean I, I, I kind of we're in quite a different position in Scotland I think in relation to government um, than uh, charities who operate in the rest of the UK because we have a much more um, kind of responsive relationship with the Scottish government potentially and, and, and with the civil service here than I see my peers having elsewhere. Um, and they feel much more like partners. Um, you know, they have responded quickly, they're supportive and they're listening and they're asking what we need and not telling us what to do. And that's and that's traditionally kind of how we work with the, the Scottish government. And 
um, that feels like it's continuing. So um, I'm hopeful, and they've moved really quickly with the resilience funding here. So I'm hopeful that that continues to be a kind of positive and thoughtful kind of working relationship between the sector um, uh, and the government. Um, so I kind of need to just be very grateful for that at the moment. Um, in terms of across the sector, I think what's interesting is the range of um, consultants and kind of umbrella bodies who suddenly their overview has become really, really important. So if we look to, here's a really good example in Scotland is uh, Ross McCulloch at Third Sector Lab, who is, you know, they run a digital business um, they work purely with the kind of um, third sector and have always been really good at supporting the sector, providing good training, providing good information. But actually, they have been a real point of rallying in the last 10 days and, and are acting as a kind of conduit for information in between organisations and providing a huge amount of leadership. So there's a point at time where actually people who have an overview like a particular charitable trust or like a particular um, consultancy who offers support across multiple organisations have suddenly become really important because they can see the common threads coming out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then just just finally, kind of amongst all the, the challenges, you mentioned a few things there that, that are more positive, but what, what have you seen so far that gives you most cause for optimism or hope that the, the sector can kind of weather this storm and, and hopefully come out even stronger on the other side? I think, um, as I don't know if you know Graham Rickey from Wren and Greyhounds, who recently wrote a book called The Lasting Difference. And he talks often and wisely about the notion that um, sustainability is not about staying the same. And I think we are seeing that play out in very immediate terms. And um, what gives me hope for the sector is the fact that um, we are changing and we can change and people are being responsive. Um, they're responding to their beneficiaries' needs, they're responding to their organisations' needs, and they're doing that thoughtfully and quickly. Um, so the fact that organisations are demonstrating that they can adapt and that they can focus on what really matters, that's the thing that's giving me hope right now. Great. Well, that's yeah, encouraging to hear, and it certainly echoes things I've been hearing from some of the other conversations that, that I've had. Um, listen, I won't take up any more of your time this morning, but uh, just, just to say again, thanks ever so much for finding some time to, to come on the podcast. It's great to, to have a chance to, to speak. Um, and certainly, you know, hopefully, maybe we could uh, try and find a time to have a sort of broader chat at some point in the future when all of this has uh, calmed down a bit and we don't necessarily have to talk about the COVID <laughs> pandemic. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. It's 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 it will be interesting to see how our world looks in six months' time, I think. And then last, but very much not least, is Carol Mack, who is the Chief Executive of the Association of Charitable Foundations, uh, the membership body for charitable foundations here in the UK. Um, and this is the one, uh, as I said up front, where there's a little bit of crackle on Carol's end of the line, which is I entirely mea culpa on that one. I think it's to do with the gain settings that I asked her to put in on it. Um, I think it's absolutely fine, though, so hopefully you'll enjoy the conversation. Here's Carol. Great. So I'm here with Carol Mack from ACF. Hi, Carol. Um, and yeah, I guess what I wanted to ask really just as a starter was just to get a, a sense from you of how the COVID-19 pandemic has been, you know, affecting you and your organisation and your members so far. 
Okay, so ACF, we're the Association of Charitable Foundations, and our mission is to support foundations to be ambitious and effective in the way they use their resources for social good. We're a membership body, and membership bodies thrive on bringing their members together. Um, that poses an obvious challenge when you can't do face-to-face -face meetings. Um, but uh, since we've all been working from home, we found lots of ways to bring get members together online. We've convened at least three conversations in the last week alone. Uh, so we're confident that we're going to be able to continue to support members um, through this challenge. In terms of um, what's happening with our members, I would say that the immediate response on the part of foundations was like most organizations to think about what it means to, to work remotely. So that uh, impacts on foundations in terms of visits to grantees, how they, how they process applications, what sort of contact they have, um, both with organizations they're looking to fund and organizations they're already funding. I think the next area was for foundations to think about the impact on their own missions. So foundations all have their own charitable purposes. Those will all be impacted in different ways um, by COVID-19. And so foundations have been thinking through what the impact of the current situation will be for their own purposes and for the organizations they support. Um, and then also I've seen many foundations look at how they can change, repurpose, step up what they do to respond to the emergency. Uh, so those were the first two responses. Um, over the past few days, I've also heard foundations increasingly urgently talking about how they can coordinate and align their funding more effectively. Um, so that it can have greater impact. And then very recently, I've heard people just start to think about uh, what things will look like when we come out the other side of the COVID-19 crisis. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, I've been speaking to a few sort of foundations and, and grant makers in the course of doing these these interviews, and I've certainly had the sense from them that a lot of them are thinking through how they can sort of shift as many of their resources as possible towards addressing these these short term issues um, in this kind of time of crisis, but at the same time not uh, kind of um, undermine some of those longer term funding relationships they they have. Um, I mean, what are you seeing so far in terms of the ways that your members are thinking about doing that? Are they kind of repurposing existing grant making, or are they looking to kind of dig into some of their endowed assets to free up more money? Yes, and I think um, both of those things I've seen, I mean, you'll know the truism, once you've seen one foundation, you've seen one foundation, so they're all going to have different responses. Um, but I would say a common response is to recognise the urgency of the situation. Um, over 250 funders have signed up to the London Funders COVID-19 commitment. Um, and so they're publicly making a commitment that they will be responsive to grantees who need to adapt their activities, who need more flexibility on dates, who need financial flexibility, and quite frankly, might need someone who can just listen to what um, what they have to say. So I, I'm seeing um, that in, in terms of a response. I have also, obviously, foundations endowments have suffered in the uh, most recent weeks, although I've lost the plot now on whether we're up or down today. Um, but overall, there, there are questions about the economy. It's worth remembering that that follows a decade of um, strong growth, particularly in equities. Um, so you have to uh, look at things in context. 
And despite the fact that um, foundations have suffered um, significant losses over the past month or so, I have heard of several foundations who have, despite that, decided that they're going to make significant increases to their spend because the need is now. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and in terms of what you're hearing from your members about um, sort of their sense of, of what's happening to their grantees, what, what, what's coming through as the kind of biggest challenges facing organisations on the ground o- over the coming months? I think they fall into two categories. There's the, quite simply the income challenge. So any organisation that's dependent on trading income or, in, or fundraising income from, from the public that involves face-to-face fundraising. I mean, those funding sources have dried up overnight. Uh, NCVO and other infrastructure bodies with whom ACF has been in close contact have estimated that over the next 12 weeks, the sector will lose £4.3 billion in income. Um, Now, that's not a gap that philanthropy can fill. The largest 300 foundations um, gave under £3 billion last year, and that includes Welcome Foundation, who uh, is clearly spending its money in relation to COVID-19. It stepped up its funding in the search for a vaccine. Um, So it's not as if that three billion isn't already fully committed. Um, So, yeah, I I think that's what I'm seeing overall. Yeah, absolutely. And and in terms of, you you mentioned there that you were sort of starting to see some funders think about the, the kind of medium to longer term challenges i mean what what do you do you get any sense of what they're thinking some of those challenges might be and what they're potentially thinking about doing now or in the shorter term to to make sure that that they kind of mitigate against them yeah can i come back that to that in a minute because i just realized i didn't get a full answer to your previous question which is around what people were hearing from organizations so the finance is clearly a challenge Um, What people are also hearing is that um, the organisations they work with can't function in the same way um, and that depending on the beneficiary group they're working with, that that can pose real problems. For example, I was in a call this morning um, with uh, funders in the youth sector hearing about vulnerable young people who have just lost access to perhaps the one trusted adult that they had who was outside the home either at school or, or in a, in a, in a youth, um, youth club type program, and they can't access them now. So um, organisations finding it um, very difficult to continue to serve their beneficiary group, um, and sometimes that is because they don't have the tech, and sometimes it's just because of the restrictions. So I guess that's the other thing um, that members are saying. And then members are also saying that they're uh, in touch with some organisations who would actually be incredibly helpful um, in responding to the current crisis, but for whatever reason, they don't have the wherewithal to do it. Sometimes that's about technology, sometimes that's about funding. So those are the categories I would say that I'm hearing from members. And then you asked me, didn't you, about um, the longer term. Can you just remind me what the question was again? Just, just saying you, you were mentioning that um, organisations were starting to, you know, funders were thinking through some of those medium and, and longer term challenges and just whether they had any sense of what they, they had identified as some of those challenges and what potentially they were thinking about in terms of shorter term actions they might start to take now to kind of mitigate against any of them. Yeah, uh, I can give a, a couple of examples. So 
Um, at, at a very high level, policy level, there are people starting to think about, okay, we need some visioning about what society might look like um, as it picks up again once the immediate crisis is passed. Uh, and thinking about um, the need to engage with think tanks um, and, and, and policy organisations to, to do some thinking around that. At the other extreme, on a very practical level, I've heard about, I heard from a foundation that funds work with young people, particularly around mental health, um, and feeling that um, when we are all able to go out again, that there will be some, some significant mental health issues that will be, ha, have been stacked up um, and will need to be addressed. I also heard from a foundation working in the education sector saying or predicting that the um, all of the progress in closing the attainment gap that's been achieved over the last 10 years is likely to be undermined by the fact that um, children have really just been thrust back on the resources of their parents um, for, for various reasons. Parents are in a different, um, are differently able to respond to that. So all sorts of impacts, I suppose they're, they will be seen through the prism of the foundation's individual mission. Uh, and then there are also foundations thinking about um, broader society and some of the lessons for that. That's, I mean, it's really interesting to to hear because, I mean, absolutely, I hadn't thought of, of some of those issues, but but clearly those are the sorts of things that, that funders and, and their grantees are going to be dealing with as we kind of come out of this this crisis period. So, it's, I mean, it's interesting to hear that thinking is already starting. Um, in the shorter term, I mean, what you mentioned already about the, the uh, sort of funding shortfall facing organisations and some of the calls that have been made um on on government to support the sector in the same way as it supported other areas of the economy what i mean is that the the main thing that you think that government needs to be doing or there are, are there other things that central or local government could be doing as well as funders and charities themselves um i think um government should think really hard about whether it can offer the same sort of flexibility in its existing funding of the sector um, as those 250 funders that have signed the COVID-19 commitment can offer. So that would be incredibly helpful. Um, I think another area would be um, ensuring that some of the packages of support that have been designed for business are applicable in the charity sector where possible. So a good example of that would be the, treasure, the uh, Chancellor's really welcome announcement um, that the government will cover 80% of staff salaries if staff are furloughed. So that will help some charities um, a lot, particularly the sort of charities that, frank, that, that are mothballing their activity um, until the, the crisis has passed. So for example, the National Trust shutting down its properties. Uh, even there was an announcement today about Oxfam laying off 70% of its staff and furloughing them. That's fantastic for that sort of charity, but it doesn't work in a hospice. Um, you can't lay off all your staff um, securing the knowledge that 80% of their salary will be paid, you need to continue to deliver a hospice service. And frankly, the health service needs the hospice service to continue too. So I understand from, um, from conversations that um, possibly that, that, that might have been, um, that wasn't intent in the design um, and that that might be something that, um, that the treasury might look at again. Um, but just thinking through the support that's offered for business, 
um, and its applicability to, to charities, looking at it through a charity lens would be incredibly helpful. Absolutely. Um, and we've, we've talked a lot, I guess, so far naturally about the, the challenges that the, the sector has faced. And, you know, I think we'll continue to face realistically over, over the coming months. But what, what have you seen so far that's given you some cause for hope and optimism about civil society's ability to rise to this challenge and hopefully come out stronger the other side? Well, talking from the foundation perspective, because that's what I know, uh, I think it's fantastic that 250 foundations have signed up to this COVID-19 commitment. That's absolutely brilliant. I think some of the significant amounts of money um, that foundations have found in a very short space of time to support emergency responses have been brilliant. I speak there as a trustee of the National Emergencies Trust, and we've had some very significant donations from foundations that wanted to get money to the front line very quickly. Um, and, and just this sense of collaboration, wanting to align. There are lots of conversations that are, I'm sure, will result in informal collaboration. That's not always visible, but it doesn't make it any less valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it certainly echoes things I've been hearing from from others, and certainly that point about collaboration is is something virtually everybody I've spoken to has has said. Um, it's now I won't take up any more of your time. I know everybody's extremely busy at the moment, but it just remains to say thanks ever so much, Carol, for coming on the podcast. Um, and I certainly hope I can convince you to come back on here at some point in the future where we might be able to talk about something that is not related to COVID-19. Thank you, Rodri. I'd, I'd love to do that. So please do ask me again. Okay, so thanks again to my guests for finding the time to come on the podcast. I hope you were able to navigate through the slightly inconsistent audio there, but please bear with me. It's uh, quite a different range of platforms and recording circumstances that I'm having to, to navigate, and also I'm doing all of the audio editing in the evenings at the moment, which is uh, I don't mind doing, but does make for some slightly kind of uh, sleepy mistakes every once in a while. Um, but I will try and put links in the show notes to various things that were discussed and places where you can get sources of information on what's going on and affecting charities during this coronavirus uh, crisis and sources of funding, that kind of thing thing. Um, if you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy if you want stuff that's more about kind of history and academic writing on philanthropy. Um, if you've got ideas for things we could talk about or people that I could have conversations with now or in the future, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about it. Please share very widely and we'll see you next time. OK, bye.